0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner's Library with me Chris Stamwell-Major. In this episode we're continuing The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part two and we're beginning with chapter three. Now if you'd like to support the podcast please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there for five dollars a month you can become part of the crew and we keep these books available for future generations of sailors. Now on with the story. Chapter three, Adrift. Joan had the whole of Peterhead Harbour of refuge to herself. It was a half a square mile of water for her to swing in. The trawlers go into the inner harbour, which I explored in the dinghy the first morning I was there, but it was no place for me. I walked to Buck and Ness one day, it is four miles south of Peterhead, and all the buildings all the way were of red granite. The smallest cottage is massively built of granite two feet thick. Even cow houses are made of granite. Immediately behind Buck and Ness Lighthouse is the strangest of villages. The winding streets are made of rough granite, set after the fashion of cobble pavements. There were tiny granite boxes for homes, many with a basement. The village had its own granite church, and its own granite war memorial. The shore was composed of sharp granite rocks of every size and shape, nothing but granite as far as the ebb exposed the land. Below low-water mark were more granite rocks, Some covered as the tide rose, and on these the sea broke badly. Yet there was a tiny harbour among the rocks ashore, sheltering a few little sailing boats. The entrance frightened me. At half flood, you could see how narrow and torturous it was. It was impossible to sail in there, I thought, except in a very small boat, and in the best of weather. I walked round the granite lighthouse, on a granite path, sat on the granite seats of the village, and walked back to Peterhead, over granite shingle. "'granite rocks, and granite cliffs. "'A little old man used to look after the dinghy for me. "'The first time he did so, he also filled my water cans "'for which I had paid a small sum. "'He was awkward in accepting it "'and refused to take any more afterwards. "'This was the second time since leaving London "'that I had met with any reluctance in taking a tip. "'The first time was at Berwick. "'I was so unaccustomed to having my offered tips rejected "'that the new behaviour caused me some anxious thought.' I felt I ought to treat these new sort of people as my friends and equals. The small boys of Peterhead could not be kept out of any stray dinghies. They delighted to play with them, and mine was the most popular one. One youngster of twelve expressed his admiration in words that have remained in my memory. "'She'll be a deer boat?' he asked. "'Don't you do any fishing?' asked one man of a group I was chatting with. Mm, "'Yes, but I've never caught any fish. Wrong bait, I suppose.' But "'What do you use?' Well, anything handy, cheese, paste, bacon rind. They're no good, he said. A very good bait which we use here is crab. He pulled his hand from his trousers' pocket, holding two for me to see. Evidently, I was supposed not to know what was meant by a crab. Do you usually carry crabs in your pocket? Well, only for a short time. My mate carries them. He'll be here in a minute or two, and then I shall give them him to keep. The mate, shortly after, came along and the other handed him the two crabs. The bait-keeper took off his cap, disclosing a large mop of uncombed hair in which half a dozen crabs were entangled. In his cap were a score more. He dropped the two crabs given him into his cap, which he then replaced on his head. I heard many and great praises of the Caledonian Canal. They made me think I was to suffer a disappointment, for it generally happens that when expectations have been greatly excited you are going to experience the common process of disillusion. Everyone assured me it was a marvellous place. Those who had been there said it was magnificent. Those who had not seen it told me it was one of the world's wonders. A traveller who had seen the Rocky Mountains as well as the canal swore that the canal was a great improvement on the mountains. I was given to understanding it was a paradise for yachts. You can bring it up when you like and where you like. You just stop, tie your boat alongside the bank and step ashore. You can lie down and go to sleep on the bank. I was inclined to put down most of this to a venial patriotism, for I had already discovered that the Scottish were extremely proud of Scotland and everything connected with it. At Peterhead, they were even inordinately proud of their storms. Sometimes, during the winter, said one, we can't walk to the head of the breakwater for months at a stretch, not even to attend to the light on the end. On Friday, June the 29th, the wind shifted from north to south Immediately, my heart leapt for joy. I am off tomorrow morning, I said, and spent an hour considering the proper moment to start so as to get the full benefit of the tide towards Fraserborough. In the morning, the wind was north again, but it was steady and gave promise of no increase he kept the promise. I assured myself that with the help of a fair tide, I could turn the 17 miles to Fraserburgh, especially if it was not all a dead beat. It was not. Then a northerly wind meant a beam wind along Moray Firth. Encouraging myself in this manner, I went out. Thirty-eight hours later, I slowly sailed past Fraserburgh and Kennard's Head. During those hours, I had turned and drifted and hove to... Pulled down the sails to get a little sleep, laboured with the sweep to get within anchoring distance of the shore. Watched Peterhead, Head, Fraserburgh and Head till I almost hated the sight of them. Neither one way nor the other would the wind blow. Once came a gust like a breath of sweet cool air in a sailorman's lungs. I gulped at it. The joan flew on for a dozen yards. Then we both sank back into an aimless and airless existence. With the tide in my favour for the fourth time a little south easterly air came up i reached Fraserburgh three hours before the tide had done but with this wind the outside anchorage was exposed and i wanted to keep out of the harbour thinking that i should be sure to find a suitable anchorage round the corner with the wind offshore i went past Kennard's head fixing upon a spot outside sandhaven for a night's berth the place was not marked as an anchorage on the charts nor mentioned in the sailing directions but the depths were reasonable. When I reached the spot, it scared me. Jagged rocks stuck up everywhere. The harbour mouth was enough to shock a well-bred boat. As far as I could see, the inside dried out to a bottom of stony spikes. I imagined hooking a rock with my anchor as the least misfortune that would afflict me, and passed on my way trembling. There was no other anchorage so that I had to resign myself to a second night out. The wind... Air, or fancied draft, gradually died. Oh, that I'd anchored at Fraserburgh, I thought. But at midnight, there was a sudden change. A strong breeze from the south, a beam wind and an offshore wind. I slipped up the mizzen and soon had all sails drawing hard. The dinghy made its own music, even the little wire tow line hummed a merry tune. We passed Troop Head, where, according to the sailing directions, furious gusts come down in offshore winds, breaking the spars of passing vessels with their violence. Joan hurried along with this helpmate of a wind until midday. Joyful hours were these. Not only was the sail a pleasure in itself, but the coast was a long passing line of prettiness. From towering heights we came to moderate cliffs, broken by many bays of all shapes and sizes, and much finer to look at than any you see in pictures. I spread open the charts and sailing directions in the well, set the tiller so that little attention was needed for steering, and with the aid of a pair of field glasses I proceeded to enjoy the coast. You may picture it all – a fine sunny day, a good sailing breeze exactly as you would like it, and a wonderful moving panorama to enjoy. After midday the drift began again, but I am pleased to say that a good offshore breeze again sprang up in the evening and I resisted the temptation to continue my journey and make a third successive night of it. Finding an anchorage marked in Spey Bay I brought up there during Monday night. Next day, it was first a beat, then a drift. I was unable to reach a port. My bread and potatoes had been finished, and for the remainder of this passage, I fed on boat-made dumplings. We drifted on and off until, to finish the weary story, I managed to get the boat into Chromaty Firth, to an anchorage at 2am on Thursday morning. Chapter 4. The Caledonian Canal the day I got to Cromaty, I took the Joan into the harbour to scrub, for she wanted cleaning badly. The last opportunity of doing this had been at Whitby six weeks before. My life again became public during the two days the Joan was tied to the key wall. The adolescent Highlanders of Cromarty used to sit on the wall above me, kicking their heels and watching all my doings. As it was useless to object, I did what was much better. I grinned my hardest. The entertainment I provided was as popular as it had been at Whitby, but I must in fairness say that they were all just as ready to give me their help as to keep me under observation. They did both efficiently. The gods who looked after me now began to be a little kind. They woke me in time to get out of the harbour when I was inclined to oversleep, and having taken me outside the Firth, they breathed aft just enough to give me a pleasant sail and a successful end to it. I reached Inverness in the nick of time before 9pm when they stopped work. At Clacknahary the boat was tied alongside some piles where I could step straight ashore. It was luxurious, not a movement on the water and scarcely any in the air. The sun shone, the weather was warm, coffee and pipe were both excellent, I blessed the gods for this once. My friend Pete Field joined me on July 10th. When I called at the hotel he had gone to, the landlady grew excited. "'Are you the gentleman I read about in the papers?' she asked. "'Certainly not,' I replied. Hmm, then it must be someone else who sailed all the way from London in a small yacht by himself. "'Where on earth did you see that?' "'I thus discovered I was known in the town. Two men had made my acquaintance when I was in the lock on Saturday. "'They were boat enthusiasts. "'They had read all the books dealing in any way with small boat sailing, "'and we told each other many things in a few minutes. "'They pulled me to a good berth, and on Sunday morning... Photographed the boat, after which they took me for a motor drive around the finest country I had yet to see, mixed locks, moors, and mountains. They ended by feeding me and lending me a book to read, which a few weeks later afforded me much comfort. They were such important citizens of Inverness that they knew the editor of the local paper, whom they provided with a paragraph of the customary inaccurate information. I became an intrepid yachtsman until the region of the paper's circulation was passed. Ladies and others took snapshots of the Joan as she went through the canal, and lock keepers were keen to lend me a hand. We found the advertisement useful during our passage through the canal, but it struck a severe blow at my usual unnatural modesty. The fee for traversing the canal from sea to sea was £5, the pavement of which was submitted to with a pang. It is a minimum charge for the journey, and as there are more than 30 locks and bridges, I suppose it is a fair price. The man who took my money said it was a pity that my boat was not bigger, as it would not have cost me any more. The fees, he admitted, were high, but even with high fees the canal still did not pay its way, so that it was lucky a government department had charge of it. The scenery alone was worth the money, however. The canal deserved all that had been said to me in its praise. You can collect all the finest hills, mountains, woods, forests, lakes and rivers with lawns and moors that you ever admired. Play combination puzzles with them. The Caledonian Canal will beat anything you can produce. When you want to bring up, you tie head and stern to poles or bollards or trees or shrubs or flowers. If the wind is off the bank, you float as far as your ropes allow. If it is towards the bank, you float as far as your keel allows. No tide, no current, no waves, no worry, no trouble. The water is fresh and good. You fill the kettle from over the side. I very much fancied a job as lockkeeper, however Peatfield said he would prefer a post as bridge attendant as it looked a little less boring. The lockkeepers indeed confirmed that it was monotonous and an undesirable place in the winter. The bridge people grinned their meaning, which we easily grasped. We started from Inverness on Wednesday afternoon 11th of July with a fair wind. After going through three locks under the interested gaze of the few people who were about and with the cheerful and active help of the lockmen, we had a gentle sail of five miles, passing Doc Garoc Lock, where we tied up for the night. Here we found a couple of open-air men living in a tent on the canal bank. During the summer, they cycled to work in Inverness. In winter, they lived in the town. Their tent was a picture of tidy comfort. The highland cattle grazing around, which, according to my distantly acquired knowledge, should have been wild and ferocious, were too tame. The men had been compelled to put a wire fence round their tent to restrain the animal's love of human society. Next morning, the wind being right ahead, we were obliged to resort to towing. We kept at it for a few hundred yards, after which it lost its amusing interest, and we waited for the wind to lull. The canal was too narrow for us to get a start with sailing, though we could generally turn if we once got going. I did not mind the delay. A month's delay would have earned my approval. In the evening, we pulled the boat a bit farther and set sail. The wind was light and still ahead, so that progress was slow. For two miles we turned along a tiny lake and a very narrow channel and then found ourselves in Loch Ness, a lake 23 miles long and more than a mile wide. We were photographed as we passed the narrows by an enthusiastic old lady who knew all about us. This was at 9pm, when the light was so poor that I am afraid she wasted her time. We anchored at 11pm near the shore, four miles down the loch. On Friday, with a stiff wind behind us, we ran down the lock to Fort Augustus. There was no trouble in keeping the boat on a straight course, nor did the dinghy shear about as it usually does on this point of sailing. The mate made the observation that we were travelling faster than the waves, but as they were only bits of things, I did not see that it mattered what they did. After going through five locks at Fort Augustus, we sailed another two miles to the next lock. To our surprise, the keeper put us through although it was past nine o'clock. That's a benefit we receive from being advertised, said I. Don't you believe it, replied the mate. It's because the lockkeeper knows that if he doesn't work now, he'll have to put us through at six o'clock in the morning. It means another hour in bed for him. That's a mean view of human nature. Besides, you don't imagine you'd get up at six, do you? No, I don't, and that's why I think the other chap doesn't want to either. At 10pm, we tied up in sight of the next lock. Our ropes were fastened to the silver birches whose branches hung over us. On the opposite bank was the grassy towpath like a fine lawn promenade. Beside it lay a stretch of moorland with a boulder-strewn river, the Oik, and beyond a line of mountains. My ability to admire fine scenery was greatly strained during the passage of the canal. For a mile next day we towed against a headwind until we were clear of a lock, a bridge, and a very narrow strip of canal. Then we set sail at the entrance to Lock Oik and at once ran aground. This was due to my own carelessness, for I had foolishly assumed that deep water existed everywhere. In Loch Oik, however, it was shallow except in the dredge channel. It took us four hours' exhausting work to get off again, after performing all the tricks we could think of. Finally, we had to careen her over by means of the peak halyards, and attached to a third anchor, we laid out. With this, and the added effect of the mate's useful weight on the end of the outswung boom, she went over enough to be pulled out into deep water. As we were tired out and it was eight o'clock, we tied to one of the channel boys for the night. On Sunday, the weather, which had been gloriously hot and sunny, changed to a misty drizzle and kept like it with a few fine intervals for the next fortnight. At five in the evening, we beat through Loch Oik and tied up close to the next lock, ready for going through in the morning. Loch Oik we both considered to be prettier than anything we had yet passed, with its fairy mountains, its antique toy castle and its little play islets, some of which were nearly big enough to stand on. When the workaday week began, we towed and locked and bridged for two or three miles until we arrived at Loch Lockie. Through this lake, we beat for ten miles against a hard wind, which made us take in a reef. We had to bail out the dinghy twice and got wet through with rain and spray because we refused to take it seriously by putting on oilskins. At night, we tied to the usual flower on the canal bank. The remaining eight miles we towed against a persistent headwind, but we passed out of the canal on Wednesday and brought up off Fort William, having taken just a week to do the journey of 62 miles. Chapter 5 Fort William to Campbelltown The Joan remained at anchor off Fort William for about 18 hours, which was long enough to enable us to visit the town, find it was impossible to get a chart there and form our mature opinion of the place. Fort William was pretty. Its goods were dear. It catered solely for tourists. Ben Nevis close by is magnificent, they told us, but few people have seen it who do not live within sight of the mountain, as it is generally covered with mist. I mentioned to the lock-keeper of Neptune's staircase as we went through that many people I knew had visited Ben Nevis and not one of them had seen it. It was always covered with mist. He grew patriotically angry. Well, that's not true. I live here quite close all my life, and I ought to know. I've seen it several times. Ben Nevis did not monopolise the Scotch mist. The country around for many miles had its fair share. According to the mate, the annual rainfall in the district was 60 inches. I think he must have got hold of the wrong units. After we crossed the highest point of the Caledonian Canal, we had not a single day without plenty of it, and several days were nothing else. Oban gave us the worst dose It lasted for 36 hours and even Oban expressed its disapproval. The following conversation, which I overheard in Oban, I thought very silly on the part of the talkers at the time. Experience has proven to me that it was the result of observation. Three tourists, a husband, a wife and a father-in-law, were looking at a map posted outside a shop. The sun was shining in preparation for the evening dose of mist. All tourists looked depressed. "'Well, we can't waste a whole day doing nothing. "'Where shall we go?' said the lady. "'Where you like. I don't mind,' was the husband's reply. "'Look, here's a map. "'You have a look and pick out a trip.' "'Hmm, what about Fort William?' "'Why, we went there yesterday. "'Did we?' "'Do you mean to say you've forgotten already? "'Don't you remember we meant to go up Ben Nevis, "'but it was too misty?' "'Oh, ah, yes. "'Well, there's a steamer runs through the sound of Mull. "'That might do, perhaps. "'Oh, dear, how silly you are.' We've already done that last Monday. I'm sorry, I really don't recollect. We were in the saloon nearly all day, just got out for an hour as we came back to Oban. You said the dinners were very good. We had two on board in order to pass the time? Oh yes, I remember now. Well, let's try a trip through the Crinan Canal. Come away, do. Don't look at the map anymore. It's no good asking you to do anything. We went through it on Tuesday. It was Scotch mist all the way and the only things we saw was the faint outline of a lock keeper once. Let's let's walk on the street then. And they walked moodily off, followed more moodily by the father-in-law. On Thursday, in a pause of the mist, we left Fort William and beat ten miles to the end of Lochiel, Eel, where we anchored for the night under a mountain, a few yards from the shore. In this spot, I first saw the anchor doing its work on the bottom. The water was so clear that every detail could be seen with ease on the floor of the lock at a depth of 18 feet. Next morning, we gave a display of futile beating against the tide in trying to get through the narrow passage leading to Loch Linney. Three times we tried, but each time the wind mocked us. The inhabitants and visitors, nearly six, were pleased with our efforts. Giving it up at last, we sailed round and round our anchorage and tried to take photographs of the boat while she sailed. After this, the tide allowed us to get on. Beating down the lock with a dropping wind and too much mist was slow work. We had no chart, and all we knew of Oban and its position was that it lay behind an island, and that there were several islands. Soon after dark, we rowed the boat into a little bay and anchored in ten fathoms, surrounded by the rocky shores of many islets. At midnight came a breeze, which made us set off again. It was weird sailing at night with mountains each side of you and cliffs you could barely make out in the darkness. After passing the southern end of Lismore Island, the harbour lights of Oban showed us where it lay. I do not think we would have found it so easily by daylight. Entering the harbour at 4am, we picked a convenient spot behind a small fleet of yachts and let go the anchor. It went with a rush for 11 fathoms. After paying out 25 fathoms and finding the boat refused to be brought up, we hauled in the chain and sailed round and round Oban Harbour for three hours trying to find a spot suitable for bringing up. At no place could we find the depth with our poor little lead line. At last, we tied to a big mooring buoy a mile away opposite the town. After a deal of searching, a chart was discovered showing the peninsula of Kantaia. It was the only chart in the town. With its aid, we sailed to the Kroening Canal, finding little difficulty about it, A strong healthy breeze enabled us to swirl through the many tide rips. Off Sheep Island, the dinghy broke adrift, but we picked it up with almost a flourish and re-spliced the wire towing line, this time putting it round a metal eye. In the first lock of the Crinan Canal, our headline slipped off the bits in an upward pull. The bowsprit suffered as the boat swung around and the sluices had to be closed before she could be brought back into position again. At first I thought a new spar was wanted but on examination we decided to keep the old one. It had some severe trials afterwards and showed no signs of breaking. This year too I had discarded bowsprit shrouds because they had been so great a nuisance in anchor work. The Crinning Canal is very narrow and much shallower than the Caledonian. It is beautiful too, but not to be thought of with the other. On one side you look across a few miles of low-lying meadowland with mountains beyond. On the other side the mountain drops steeply down to the canal. Every now and then it widens to a tiny lake with a cottage on the waterside. A resting place for the night was in front of a small village of a dozen white houses, which lined the grassy towpath. Opposite was a steep moor. Just as we were on the point of starting in the morning, we found the boat was aground and could not be pulled off. No fuss was made. The keeper of the lock above opened the gates, thus raising the water six inches, which was sufficient to float us off. For the last three miles of the canal we had to resume our towing, but this time many little ladies and gentlemen volunteered to pull, to the mate's joy. He carried the slack end of the rope only. We made the temporary acquaintance of a man who had recently taken over an inn and was naturally anxious to run the place for profit. An increase in the takings was, in fact, the desire of the new proprietor. He had observed that another pub in the town was the resort of those inhabitants who spoke Gaelic. Further observation led him to find the reason for this preference – the rival proprietor himself spoke Gaelic. So he made up his mind to learn the language himself, to induce these people to come and drink beer at his place. This is one of the most useful purposes for which a foreign language has ever been learnt, and I am pleased to put it on record. During the year's cruise I touched at places where, in all, four strange languages were spoken – Gaelic, Urse, Manx and Welsh. I have never heard a single word of any of them spoken. While we sat in a cabin one day at Adrashag, Pete Field suddenly raised his hand impressively for silence. Listen, someone is speaking Gaelic, he said. I listened hard, but my hearing is none too sharp and I had to confess that it sounded to me like any other confused noise. Yes, that's Gaelic, sure enough, he went on. I heard it spoken when I was here last year and I recognised the gutturals. Upon this, he put his head out of the cabin doors to see the talkers. A few seconds later, he withdrew it and turned to me in disgust. Gah, it's not Gaelic after all, it's a couple of fellows quarrelling, they were swearing at each other in military English. Before we left the canal, I had to visit my enemy the toll collector. The minimum amount the company would accept for the through passage was thirty-five shillings, and the man who took it was not even sympathetic as the Caledonian official had been. This one seemed to think I was a fool not to have the biggest boat I could take through for the money. The Crinning Canal is 15 miles long and has 15 locks. We left Ardushaig at 2pm on July 25th and after a fine fair wind, a short whirring turn and a hard beam wind we reached Campbelltown at midnight, bringing up in a rainy gust that tore the jib to pieces. It was an old sail and I had been expecting it to go before. Unfortunately I had not taken the precaution to bring another to replace it and so a tiny storm jib which I had never set and a big balloon staysail. We're our only choice for Hetzel. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner and that's all from the mariners library today and i look forward to speaking to you in the next one cheers